Welcome to all talks of the First World Sepsis Congress. My name is Marvin and over the next two hours, you will learn about the challenges in the management of pandemics. Please keep in mind to use the chapter markers if you want to listen to one specific speaker. If you want to see the slides of the speakers, please go to YouTube and search for First World Sepsis Congress. Now, let me hand it over to a colleague, Nikki Shindo from the World Health Organization to get us started. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. This is Nikki Shindo from the World Health Organization's Health Emergency Program. It's truly um, my honor um, to chair this session, and I would like to thank Conrad and uh, the organizer for lining up such wonderful speakers. And then... Um, I just would like to uh, let everybody know that I'm calling from Nepal. Um, it's just past midnight here. Um, maybe not all of you are aware that um, Nepal has um, a quite unique time zone setting that is um, plus uh, five hours, 45 minutes uh, from uh, GMT. Um, so um, I just want to... Um, um, make the speakers aware that there is a risk of power outage anytime and I'd like to um, um, uh, ask all the speakers um, to just uh, uh, act as um, their um, experience speaks and then um, try to uh, do their best to uh, uh, wait for my reconnection uh, if in, in, in case of uh, power outage. So uh, without delay, I would like to um, start um, this session. This, will, this session will last about two hours, and uh, we have one, two, three, four, five, six um, great speakers. And that uh, this session is titled um, Challenge in the Manage of Pandemics. So um, when we hear pandemics, it's not only influenza anymore, and we are actually seeing the matching of the pandemic of Zika virus infection, and um, maybe other emerging infectious diseases will appear and become pandemics. Um, so um, the great lessons learned from the Spanish influenza can be the basis for all the preparedness and response. So here I would like to introduce our first speaker and um, keynote speaker, uh, Professor David Morris from the National Institute of Health uh, from the United States of America. Uh, Professor David Morris is advisor to the director of NIH and he also worked uh, with the U.S. CDC as the Chief of Respiratory and Special Pathogens Branch. So um, he, I'm really looking forward to his, his, his great um, story about um, lessons learned. And um, here's um, to um, pass the microphone to um, Professor Morris. Floor is yours, please. Uh, thank you, Nikki, and hello to everybody out there. Um, yes, I'm going to talk about a century-old pandemic, but this is not a history lesson. Um, what I hope to do is talk a little bit about how sepsis and septic shock and death from bacterial disease comes about. And um, this is to talk about natural history and pathogenesis. And one of the points to be thinking about as I speak is 
that if septic, sepsis and septic shock and death are the downstream events, what are the upstream events and how do they progress? Because if we can answer that question, we'll have some ideas about what we can do to prevent the outcomes from happening. So let's go back in time more than 100 years ago, before the 1918 pandemic of influenza, and talk about something that is relevant to everything else I'm going to say, and that is the subject of bacterial viral copathogenesis, people being infected by two different microorganisms at once, one a virus and one a bacterium. Um, the realization of the importance of copathogenesis came about in the early days of the 20th century when immigrants were coming into Ellis Island in the United States, and officers, health officers there began to realize that um, children infected with measles and other viral diseases, but I'm speaking of measles most particularly, um, had a certain mortality rate. But if they were co-infected with other things like streptococci or diphtheria, their mortality rate was much higher. This was an epidemiologic observation. Um, a few years later, the United States entered World War I in 1917, the third year of the war, and there were a number of Army training camps set up, which had a total population at a time, as much as a million soldiers at a time, and there were outbreaks of everything, including um, a massive measles outbreak, which ended up uh, killing 3,206 3, soldiers. And these soldiers died not of measles, but of secondary bacterial pneumonia. One study, um, which is a particularly good study, cohorted soldiers that came in with measles. So and what they did is this. Every soldier who presented with measles had a throat culture taken for group A beta hemolytic strep, strep pyogenes, or then it was called strep hemolyticus. And soldiers who had a positive culture were sent to one particular ward to be isolated for their measles. And uh, soldiers who had negative cultures went to another ward and were recultured every day. And what they found was that of the complications and deaths, 100% of those were in soldiers who were colonized with strep. Now, nobody died of streptococcal disease per se. They died of secondary bacterial pneumonia, and streptococci was found in their lungs. And the, the pneumonia pattern was bronchopneumonia, and bronchopneumonia is a pattern in which the uh, lesions, at least in the beginning of the process, are around the bronchial tree, and I'll talk a little bit more about how that happens. So now we're coming to measles, and uh, I'm sorry, now we're coming to influenza, not measles. Um, I think as most people know, the measles epidemic in 1918 was the single most fatal event in the history of the world. 50 to 100 million people died. In our laboratory here at NIH, one of our laboratories here at NIH, we obtained from the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology pathology specimens from 58 soldiers who died in 1918 from influenza and recut and stained them and looked at them and found that 100% of these 58 um, autopsy slides showed that death was associated with severe bacterial pneumonia. We also did a literature search of the era of 1918 and early 1919 and we found every article we could find in 
15 countries in multiple languages, 173 studies reporting autopsy results on eight, over 8,000 um, people, soldiers and civilians, all of these having both pathology results and bacteriology results. And what we found was that in 95% of cases, there were pneumopathogens cultured from the lungs at autopsy. By pneumopathogens, I mean bacteria that are normally or are sometimes found in the upper respiratory tract of normal people, but which um, have the ability to cause severe pneumonia. So 95% of those autopsies in soldiers and civilians that had uh, pleural effusions and the pleural effusions were cultured, 80.4% had these pneumopathogens. And significantly, the, of the people who died and who were, had blood cultures obtained before death, 70% had one or more positive blood culture. And the pneumopathogens I mentioned were particularly three, strep pneumoniae, which is pneumococcus, strep pyogenes, or group A beta hemolytic strep, and staphylococcus. But there were others as well. There were actually outbreaks in which fatal pneumonia associated with 1918 flu was caused by meningococcus, that is meningococcal pneumonia. And those soldiers did not die of meningococcal meningitis or even meningococcemia. They died of um, meningococcal pneumonia. So what are the lesions close up that are associated with these copathogenic infections? The viral lesions are fairly constant, and that is the infection of apical cells with bronchial, bronchiolar and bronchial respiratory epithelium. You can think of it as, as we know that um, the, the bronchial tract is lined with uh, protective cells, epithelial cells, that in, and there are goblet cells and mucin-secreting cells and ciliated cells that protect the respiratory tract from anything going down. And um, these are the things that are destroyed. It's kind of like mowing the lawn. When um, the virus comes in, it mows the lawn. It strips away one cell layer thick of epithelium and then other bad things can happen. So the 1918 pneumonias were almost all bronchopneumonias, just as we saw a minute ago, or I said a minute ago, uh, in talking about um, uh, measles pneumonia. There were bronchopneumonias, and almost all of them were associated with massive infection. Uh, but evidence of tissue repair was there. So the virus did its thing, but it repaired quickly. And one would imagine that had these people not got secondary bacterial infections, they would have been fine. They would have recovered, just like most of us recover from influenza. It's worth asking here, what was the proximate cause of death? These people died of bacterial pneumonia, but that, and that's something that would be written on the death certificate. But what, how actually did they die? It's a little hard to tell from clinical notes written long before we had ICUs and the types of studies we can do now, like um, oxygen tension and so on. But it appears to me, at least, from reading many, many of these autopsies and clinical reports, that the causes of death were often from... Um, damage to the, um, uh, from hypoxia that resulted from either damage to the pulmonary tissue, there was just no more gas exchange, or else from alveolar edema, the alveoli actually were filled with water. Sometimes death appeared to result from sepsis and septic shock, um, presumably associated with multi-organ failure. And in some cases, not very often, death was due to heart failure or renal failure apart from multi-organ failure or from late complications. So by 1918, around the world, pathologists understood that 
this copathogenesis was what was killing people, the virus plus bacteria. A French physician said if grip or influenza condemns the secondary infections execute, and the preeminent pathologist of the 1918 pandemic, William McCallum, a uh, Canadian-American, um, essentially said that he had never performed an autopsy of somebody who died of flu in which he didn't find bacteria. So just to sum up what I've said about measles and, and flu, there's these two pandemics in the military camps that were studied, and one was 1917 measles, the other was 1918 flu. 100% um, of all U.S. Army camps were involved. The deaths were large. The case fatality rate was large. The bacteria that caused the deaths were largely the same. And the pathology, with a minor exception or two, the pathology of measles, pneumonia deaths, and the flu pneumonia deaths were identical. This was essentially the same disease. And McCallum noted that um, it appears there were two great epidemic outbreaks of pneumonia, the first closely associated with measles, the second following influenza. In other words, he didn't think of these as epidemics of measles and uh, influenza. He thought of them as epidemics of severe bacterial pneumonia, which just happened to be set off by the two prevailing um, uh, uh, viruses of the of that era. Now, um, it's not possible, of course, from an autopsy to look at natural history and pathogenesis because an the person died only at one point in time. But you know, in, when uh, when autopsies are done, you can look at the tissues and, and find the lung tissue, for example, in different areas of the lung or in different stages of the process. And by doing enough of these, you can develop a sort of a picture of the progression, the natural history of the disease as it evolved, even though you're only seeing the snapshot, not the whole movie. And when you combine that with epidemiologic data, here's what seems to have happened. Um, in both of these epidemics of measles and um, of influenza in army camps, there were colonization, what I would call colonization epidemics of bacterial pneumopathogens. The soldiers come into camps, they're in crowded barrack conditions, um, there are epidemics in which everybody becomes, almost literally almost everybody becomes stuck colonized with strep, or if it's a different situation with pneumococcus. And, um, and then, then a cytolytic virus comes along, a virus that mows the lawn of the respiratory epithelium and may go all the way down the respiratory tree. There are the, the defenders against bacteria going, going out of the nose and throat and down into the lungs are gone. The defense is gone. The bacteria go down and adhere to the denuded the basal layer under the denuded epithelial cells set up bacterial pneumonia, and this is what explains the pattern of bronchopneumonia as opposed to lobar pneumonia. And by the way, the same sort of patterns are seen in flu deaths today. So now fast forward a little bit to the modern era where we have experimental techniques, and um, the um, uh, many researchers, including some at NIH, have begun to study viral bacterial copathogenesis in experimental models, usually mice, not a very good model, but it's easy, um, also in primates, and I'm going to discuss a little bit about that. In many mouse models and many laboratories, um, the, if you give an influenza virus, uh, for example, the 1918 virus or others, uh, plus a bacterium like pneumococcus, the pathology is much worse. And that's true, and the, and the death, the, the rapidity of death and the total death of the experimental animals is much higher when some viruses at least, influenza viruses we're speaking of now, um, and some bacteria at least cause disease together or are given together. 
And it's the same thing, the same story I mentioned before that was put together from natural history reasoning about the 1918 pandemic a century ago. In viral infection alone, the epithelial cells are gone, but the basal cells remain. In copathogenesis, the bacteria come in and destroy the basal cells, and now the bacteria have access to the parenchymal tissue, and they can spread out unimpeded or largely unimpeded by the defense, by the defense mechanisms of the host. So um, some things we can say about studies done here and elsewhere are that, the, um, that influenza infections increases bacterial replication if the bacteria get there, and that this results in severe necrotizing bronchiolitis and alveolitis with also suppurative pluritis. Uh, pluritis. Also, I'll show this in a minute, I'll discuss it in a minute, there's marked neutrophil activation, at least with the 1918 virus, and increased reactive oxygen uh, species, and cell death and uh, elastase deposition, as well as um, activation of the extrinsic pathway and thrombosis. Now, there's a large body of experimental work on this, uh, and um, uh, I did, a few years ago, I looked at how many papers had been published studying influenza bacterial copathogenesis in a three-year period, and it was 252 publications. By now, it's many hundreds of publications. So many labs are working this, working on this. It's a big topic of research. And I want to also mention, this is a little bit of an aside, but one of the things learned from this, um, from these animal studies was something that um, clinicians predicted was true 100 years ago in 1918, that um, pneumococcal transmission between experimental animals uh, is, occurs at a higher rate or only in some experiments when the animals are infected with influenza as well. That is, influenza infection also not only um, uh, is a setup for more severe disease and bacterial co-infection, it causes transmission of bacterial disease. So we're beginning to see a, a, a pathogenic model of what's happening, and it begins with the widespread viral epithelial injury caused by the virus, influenza in, in the case I'm talking about. An inflammatory response occurs. In the case of the 1918 influenza, uniquely that inflammatory response uh, involves uh, recruitment of a, an enormous number of neutrophils. In some other influenza viruses, most other ones that have been studied don't do that. Um, this viral damage leads to increased bacterial invasion and adhesion and higher replication or higher amount, uh, colony amounts of bacteria. Damage to the tissue results in decreased blood flow. Um, there's an immune response to the virus and to the bacterium. The viral immune response... Um, is um, uh, is involved in activating even more neutrophils, even in the in the case of other viruses, not the 1918 virus, and um, the uh, uh, bacteria induces its own immune response, um, and the. The downstream cascade of this is that neutrophils and in some cases macrophage release factor three, which cause increased platelet activation, elastase. Um, which uh, causes thrombus formation, and um, uh, the uh, result of this is increasing tissue damage from the combined effects of the infection of the two organisms and the damaging immune responses to both of them. So I'm going to end by just um, uh, 
giving you some thoughts to ponder about, and these are my thoughts, they're not experimental research thoughts, but um, given that, given that a couple things that I'm going to mention, that influenza and other respiratory diseases like RSC and parainfluenza are so common and they're not likely to be prevented in the near future, we have no vaccines, for example, and they cause significant mortality, and given that colonization of the upper respiratory tract with these bugs of interest, pneumococcus, strep, and staph, and others, is very common and not likely to be entirely prevented in the near future, um, in most viral epidemics, only a small percentage of people have these severe complications. But when they do have it, the time from the recognition of the complication, by which I mean developing bacterial bronchopneumonia, to the time of severe disease or death, is often very short, sometimes a matter of hours. So that suggests that there's a, if we're going to intervene with antibiotics, there's probably, in many cases, a really very narrow window of time in which antibiotics must be given, and after that time they may not work. Therefore, I think there's an urgent need to identify patients with impending complications and uh, perhaps uh, hopefully identify um, and use early biomarkers of bacterial bronchopneumonia, perhaps based on bacterial genes or proteins, host response genes, or systemic inflammation markers. We also need to understand more about the natural history and pathogenesis. Um, but in the meantime, we do have influenza and pneumococcal vaccines. They're not entirely perfect vaccines, but there's mounting evidence that they do reduce deaths. In some cases, don't do a good job of preventing disease, but when disease occurs, they do re reduce death. And I think, in addition, we need to make sure that healthcare providers counsel patients at risk, the elderly and um, those who with chronic diseases who are most likely to die from influenza, RSV, and all these other viral diseases, uh, and have a plan for them to get seen on an emergent basis when a complication might develop. Thank you. Thank you, um, Professor Morris. Um, there is one comment from uh, uh, German um, participants that um, saying that we still have a high mortality rate from influenza um, in Germany. Um, annually from 10 to 12,000, and um, this is a comment from, from the uh, participants, and it is very likely that it is the combination of virus and bacterial infection that kills the, these patients. Um, so um, we would like to welcome more questions. Uh, while waiting for other questions, um, I'd like to um, pose some questions to you, uh, Professor Morris. Um, so um, it would be ideal if we could have these biomarkers, especially um, if it's, they are available um, as point-of-care diagnosis. But um, as a, the World Health Organization has to be better prepared for the next pandemic, um, if the situation is, is um, such um, that the mortality is very high, and uh, if we are to see um, the same pattern like 1918, then uh, would you um, recommend the early use of um, antibiotics, antimicrobials, um, to treat influenza as, uh, infection? Over to you. Okay, thank you. I, um, well, it's a good question and one I've thought a lot about. I guess I'd have to say that um, the, the evidence isn't quite there yet, in my mind, to make a clinical recommendation 
of treating patients uh, before they have a problem with antibiotics, and that entails problems of its own. Um, it's uh, it's something that uh, perhaps should be a decision individualized by clinicians, um, and there might be several aspects of that. One is give everybody antibiotics when there's a flu epidemic. I don't think anybody is going to vote for that. Another might be um, just give antibiotics to people who are at high risk who have influenza, uh, but even, you know, not complicated, but uncomplicated influenza. Um, the problem with that is that the more, even in 1918, the problem, the case fatality rate was under 1% probably. So that and whenever you give, you can't, the, the problem is we can't predict of all the people who get influenza, which ones of those are going to go on to get a bacterial complication. Even elderly people who are the group at high risk, the vast majority of those people get influenza and they'll do fine. So um, I'm, I'm really not answering your question, but saying it would be an easier question to answer if we had a way to predict early on who was uh, you know, coming down with a serious complication. And, you know, there are some of the work I presented uh, a minute ago that um, is, is from studies in which host response genes have been looked at in, in, uh, in, hu in animals, experimental animals. And it's becoming clear that the host immune response pattern to influenza bacterial co-infection is relatively specific for some viruses such that if you had a way to detect that pattern, um, you know, F3, high F3 release or something like that, um, it might be possible to someday have a test that shows that people are or are very likely to be developing bronchopneumonia, even though their chest x-rays will be fine and it may be afebrile. Thank you. And then um, I remember the famous W-shaped uh, mortality curve uh, during the uh, 1918 pandemic, and then um, the mortality was highest in younger populations, such as the um, the population represented by young soldiers. So, um, are there any uh, immunological or specific um, reasons why these um, populations are more affected and have more complication, like um, secondary bacterial or co-bacterial co infection? Over to you. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think that there's there's a lot of theories, but most of them don't seem to hold water. And I don't I don't think there's any plausible theory um, other than the theory that um, that uh, the rate was not necessarily higher in young adults. It was lower in people over that age range by because of immunity to a previous virus in the 1800s. Now. That's a theory that fits all the facts, except if it's true, that means that without that protective immunity, um, the case fatality rate would have been extraordinarily higher in people over uh, 40, something we've never seen with any influenza virus before. So I think, I think the returns aren't in. But it's interesting to note that the reason that all these people died, remember that the peak is not the, the peak age in the the dub of the W in 1918, which was uh, the the people who were in that peak were roughly age 20 to 40 or something like that, 25 to 45 in that age range. Um, those people who died didn't die of influenza; they died of bacterial pneumonia, just like everybody else. So we have to think of it as why did so many people die of bacterial pneumonia? Um, and their case fatality from bacterial pneumonia was no different than it was at other times. In other words, they just they they had a higher rate of bacterial pneumonia. 
but they didn't have a higher rate of dying from bacterial pneumonia than people in 1916 and 1913 and other years who had the same types of bacterial pneumonias. It's a complicated problem. <laughs> thank you very much. Um, it's a great talk. And uh, with that, um, I'd like to thank the first speaker, uh, Professor Morris, and would like to invite the second, second, thank you very much, uh, second speaker, Dr. Robert Fowler uh, from Sunnybrook Health Science Center in Canada. Uh, also, um, Rob is Associated Professor of Department of Critical Medicine and Director of the Institute of Health Policy Evaluation and uh, Clinical Research. So, um, and also uh, Rob has some um, leading role in, in many uh, clinical research areas, particularly in the area of critical care. And also he... Um, did a great job and, and worked extensively during our West African Ebola outbreak as WHO clinicians. With that, um, welcome, Rob. The floor is yours. Uh, thanks very much, Nikki, and uh, thank you as well to the organizers of this, uh, this global conference. It's uh, terrific to be able to speak to so many people and so many parts of the world simultaneously. Uh, I will speak uh, over the next 15 minutes or so on lessons to be learned from the H1N1 influenza pandemic, and it's a natural follow-on from uh, the great introduction that we had to the origins of uh, one of the, the worst pandemics that the world has recorded in the 1918-1919 pandemic uh, from the last speaker. Um, I'm going to present from the perspective, as Nikki mentioned, as a critical care physician and also as an epidemiologist, but someone who has engaged uh, with public health from WHO perspective over the last many years and uh, think it's very important to consider uh, the care of critically ill patients irrespective of whether or not you have an intensive care unit or whether your resource uh, base is, is less. Uh, patients still need as much care as we can bring to them, and I think uh, we've seen over the last many recent uh, outbreaks and pandemics that with that care we can really impact mortality rate for patients that um, otherwise may certainly die but may certainly survive with this care. Um, so. As alluded to, our capacity to care for critically ill patients is often exposed during times of increased demand. And in the past, uh, patients would be very critically ill but have very few resources to get them through this illness in order to live longer and productive lives. So the so-called Spanish flu of 1918-1919 uh, started out maybe uh, slightly less severe in terms of infectiousness, in terms of lethality, but is thought to have changed over the course of period of the uh, First World War uh, to the point that it really began to be associated more closely with lower respiratory tract infection and inevitably bacterial co-infection. And as mentioned, uh, by 1920, approximately 50 to 100 million people, an enormous proportion of the global population at that time had died. Now, in 1918, uh, these people died in 2016. Where resources permit, they come to an intensive care unit or are treated by folks that are able to help deliver acute care, and most of these people are able to survive. Um, 
a little bit of a digression to personal experience with uh, outbreaks that were previously unknown. And so for me in 2003 in Toronto as a critical care physician, I came into very sort of close contact with patients uh, with a uh, as yet undescribed severe respiratory illness, subsequently described as, uh, as SARS and admitted patients to my own intensive care unit that came from the first family of those infected in Toronto. And we see here just a slide of, of uh, where I'm working today in the intensive care uh, of colleagues who were active and engaged in caring for these patients, many of whom got sick and unfortunately uh, some of whom are no longer with us because of a severe and previously unknown infection. From that experience, we could see that of those patients that became critically ill with SARS, mortality at about a month after the onset of their illness was about a third of all patients to become critically ill. And another 16% of patients were still receiving mechanical ventilation, so had severe, very severe lung injury that was persistent. And so at a month into the illness, about half of the patients were described as having a poor outcome, a very important clinical consequence for patients during a newly described outbreak leads to very severe clinical illness. One of the other things that became very clear and is a lesson that has been a recurrent one in so many outbreaks is that we have great capacity to fall down when it comes to infection prevention and control and to prevent spread to both other patients or to our colleagues when we're dealing with something that is transmitted especially by droplet or certainly through aerosol means. And so this is an example of, of how far potentially infectious particles can travel between patients if they're receiving intensive care with high-flow oxygen. When we looked in the SARS experience, we found that we placed physicians and nurses and respiratory therapists at very high risk of contracting SARS, uh, likely uh, through close contact in doing invasive procedures such as mechanical ventilation, intubation, and potentially other uh, invasive airway procedures. Now, this is a a big deal, not just for uh, our colleagues who get sick, but it's also a big deal for treating patients during an outbreak because it's very difficult to care for an increasing number of patients when the workforce of healthcare professionals is being hit with the same illness and is in declining numbers. Another lesson learned at the system level uh, during that experience was that it very quickly can take a toll on the healthcare system overall by putting whole intensive care units or hospitals under quarantine so that further patients may not be admitted to those hospitals. And in the Toronto experience, we had about 40% of our ICUs and ICU beds quarantined at one point, which places tremendous increased demand on the remaining ICUs and healthcare workers, and in fact leads to a spillover effect of likely worse mortality for other illnesses that might need to be cared for in a critical care setting or in a hospital setting. In fact, in our experience, and where I think I've learned a lot of my own personal lessons the hard way is that up to 20% of all the patients in the intensive care units in the city were healthcare workers, uh, our colleagues, who were subsequently sick and unable to continue to help caring for an increasing number of patients. 
So clinical lessons and also some research implications from this experience is that morbidity and mortality and outbreaks are important for patients. They're also very important for clinicians. And then a carry-on from that is that performing research during an outbreak is difficult if there are insufficient staff to care for patients or if the staff, in fact, are too fearful to engage in that health care. So jumping ahead just a few years to the H1N1 beginnings of the first pandemic of this century, this millennia, in March of 2009, uh, there were an increasing number of cases, as we recollect, uh, in Mexico of severe influenza-like illness, severe pneumonia in young people, uh, the, the numbers of which had not been recently seen, that sparked concern, certainly in Mexico and in the Americas, and then subsequently globally for a new H1N1 outbreak and subsequently pandemic. The relevance to Toronto, where I work, is that there's a tremendous amount of air traffic between Mexico and Toronto around that time of the year, and a lot of travel back to Mexico that then imported and introduced uh, H1N1 to our local environment. And so Canada uh, was one of the areas of North America and certainly the world that was first hit uh, after Mexico in 2009. We, we quickly realized that we were also getting a lot of cases of H1N1 and worked with our Mexican colleagues uh, in critical care to try to help describe the phenotype of the illness that we were seeing uh, that was so surprising to much of the world in those early days. And one of the things that uh, was very important uh, in the Mexico experience was that they quickly found that they were not just at capacity to care for patients, but were in fact beyond capacity and had to add, as their numbers of influenza-like illness and pneumonia presenting to the ICU rose from a baseline, and this is just one representative hospital, courtesy of a colleague, Guillermo Dominguez-Cheret in Mexico City, 18 intensive care units with 24 ventilators, quickly filling those, requiring another eight ICU beds to come online, 28 ventilators, and then as those were filled, another 10 more ventilators, but no more ICU beds. And so you had a situation where very sick people were being taken care of in all parts of the hospital because there just wasn't room for people to go to the intensive care unit where most of the resources and personnel were. We saw as well in a comparative study between our two countries that people were a little bit more reluctant or a little bit more delayed in their presentation to hospital, on average two days more than in the Canadian experience. But then once people did get to hospital, they were very critically ill, moving to an intensive care unit within the first day of admission. And from this slide, we see that of those that receive mechanical ventilation, it's interesting to note that while H1N1 had a prolonged period of mechanical ventilation for most of these patients, the duration of ventilation exceeded duration of intensive care unit stay in Mexico, highlighting the fact that many of these patients were needing to be taken care of outside of an ICU setting because the capacity just didn't exist. And as a follow-on from that, we see that outcomes using the very same definitions of critical illness across a hospital, a whole hospital, the outcomes were very different in different contexts, whereas we were hit hard in Canada in certain places, uh, 
we actually were able to stay within our capacity throughout most of the outbreak in most all of the cities in the country, excepting a few hot spots that were really stretched, not quite as stretched as in Mexico City. Caring for these patients can be very difficult using conventional means, so ventilation and oxygenation through an endotracheal tube is effective, yet once the airways are completely full, and this is a very representative uh, both chest x-ray and CT scan from Andrew Davies from the Australian-New Zealand ECMO investigator group that shows when the air spaces are filled, it's difficult to provide oxygenation and ventilation any longer through our traditional means. And this was one of the rare examples in recent history where in the adult patient population, we moved very quickly to consider adopting a new means of supporting people with severe hypoxic respiratory failure with extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, circulating blood outside of the patient, oxygenating and removing, car removing carbon dioxide, uh, bypassing the ventilator, in fact, and bypassing the lungs in order to care for patients who otherwise almost certainly would have died. In the Australian experience, Unlike many parts of the world during the H1N1 pandemic, they adopted the use of ECMO early on and over both Australia and New Zealand put a large number of young adult patients on ECMO. And their experience is interesting and probably informative to the rest of the world in that they treated a lot of patients with ECMO who had severe, severe ARDS with very, very, very low uh, PaO2 to FiO2 ratios, severe hypoxic lung injury, relatively young for a relatively long time, and a remarkable three-quarters of patients survived their ECMO experience uh, to ICU discharge, which is dramatically different from our uh, historical notions of survival with ECMO for adults with severe lung injury, and this undoubtedly speaks to treating a patient population who is young and otherwise without major comorbid condition, uh, that patient population that if we have the resources, we can treat them and they can survive. And interestingly, when we review uh, mortality among critically ill patients across all of the studies published during and post H1N1 pandemic, we see a very, very interesting and probably telling mortality curve that we can see by region, which often mirrors very closely to income status and resources at the local level, uh, a relationship with mortality, where in fact, in this case, Australia highlighted lowest mortality throughout the H1N1 pandemic, and we can see a gradation going down through different resource settings across the world uh, to a mortality of upwards to about 60% among those that were critically ill. So difficult to make sure that we compare the exact same patients in different kinds of studies across different geographies, but a very, very large difference in mortality across uh, regions for a very similar illness. We wanted to repeat the same look at outcomes for H1N1 in another very, very heavy uh, pandemic H1N1 year in 2013-2014. And we did the same study again in Mexico and Canada in 21 hospitals in 13 ICUs in Mexico and 8 in Canada using the same case report form, the same definitions across the hospital setting to include patients with severe uh, H1N1. 
And we found again, somewhat surprisingly, a large difference in mortality between the two jurisdictions. And the things that underlied the difference in mortality seemed to be both those that we would expect. So sicker patients and sicker patients in Mexico, for instance, than in Canada had a higher mortality. Those that were older had a higher mortality. But a relationship that was striking also that ICUs with fewer resources in terms of uh, ventilator capacity, uh, personnel capacity, beds relative to the hospital catchment area also had higher mortality. Clinical lessons from this are that outcomes from a very similar, similar illness might be very different in different settings, and this very well may be related to differences in resources. Are there research lessons to learn? In the same study, we also decided to see how difficult is it to set up a very straightforward observational study looking at H1N1 and how long does it take. And this slide documents times from generating a protocol, a research protocol, to submitting it to the Research Ethics Board of individual hospitals, having it approved, having contracts where necessary between sponsoring institution and individual sites to starting to screen and then being able to actually transfer some funds to help people with the study. And if you tally up all of those times, you get to just about a year's duration of startup activities. And this says even though there may be an acceleration of the process during an outbreak or a pandemic, it can take an awfully long time to start up a relatively straightforward observational study. And if we wait until outbreaks begin to initiate the research, then we will almost inevitably fail to improve care, even with observational uh, studies. And for H1N1, as with SARS, as a result, there are very few therapeutic uh, trials, so actual clinical trials, to try to influence our notion of what's best care. And to me, a major lesson learned from uh, many of these pandemics of late, certainly the H1N1 pandemic, is that we must be prepared to care for patients and to conduct clinical research well before outbreaks begin. And I wanted to highlight one initiative that has been growing over the past few years to try to help with this goal. The International Severe Acute Respiratory and Emerging uh, Infection Consortium, or ISARIC, that is a partnership with WHO, hopes to help people in various jurisdictions around the world with means to rather quickly take vetted and very well-designed case report forms that are in paper and electronic format to use in a local jurisdiction for people that are experiencing an outbreak. One of the important features of this case report form, I think, is its tiered notion where it respects that there's different capacity in different jurisdictions, maybe for clinical care, but certainly to do clinical research, and that you have an option to collect a little bit of data at baseline or an option to collect more data where those resources allow, but that all of the data conceivably uh, could be looked at in aggregate because of common very core elements. And so my summary is that lessons learned for me, certainly from the H1N1 influenza experience, is that our capacity to care for critically ill patients is often exposed during times of increased demand, but the vast majority of those severely ill, critically ill patients will survive if resources exist. That health worker 
worker illness, and in particular infection prevention and control are very important aspects of outbreak prevention and response. And if we wait until outbreaks start to initiate research, we will often fail to improve the care of patients that we so sorely need to improve. And on that, I'll stop and thank you very much. Thank you very much, Rob, uh, for, for great key points from the lessons learned from the H1N1-09 pandemic. Um, so I got some alerts from the secretariats that we are a bit behind. Um, so we have to um, move on to the next um, presentation. And uh, let's keep um, some points to, to Rob uh, if we can find some time um, at the end of this session. Um, so next speaker is um, Dr. Ed Kelly, my colleague um, from WHO Geneva, and he's Director of Surveillance and Prevention and Safety and leading WHO's work in strengthening health systems and security. So, um, Secretariat, um, are you ready? Um, so, he, I think he, he's recorded the presentation, so please go ahead. Hello, and thank you for including me in today's discussion here at the World Sepsis Congress, and a big thank you to the organizers for including the World Health Organization in what is currently the most important and largest discussion on the issue of sepsis globally. Uh, for WHO, questions of infection prevention and control have been central to our approach on strengthening countries' health systems and on working on important new agendas such as responding to disease outbreaks around the world. Today, I'll take some time to talk about one particular aspect of that in terms of the lessons learned from Ebola, where WHO was intimately involved and on which we have a number of important con concepts and reflections to make that could be relevant for the group gathered today. Firstly, if I can say that the question of Ebola and the questions of technical importance and medical significance and evidence building are all there in the Ebola question and in the Ebola response. But at the end of the day, it really was a human tragedy that we were dealing with. These issues of appropriate burial and personal protective equipment and loss of health workers boiled down to the fact that in these three countries and then around the world in, in countries that, that ended up being affected because of their health workers being deployed, this was a human tragedy, the likes of which the world hasn't seen in terms of a hemorrhagic fever outbreak ever before. It was unprecedented, and the response itself was unprecedented as well. The data show quite clearly that the spread of this particular outbreak was not uniquely due to the lack of, for instance, personal protective equipment that was in these countries. A map of the three countries shows that what we are talking about is a population movement question and with axes of infections coming along main transportation routes and in easily accessible border crossings that touched on all three countries following the initial outbreak of cases in Guinea early in the epidemic curve. WHO 
track these elements of the epidemic in their response work and began a piece of activity that was laid out in the Ebola response roadmap, mapping how the outbreak was evolving in a set of alarming ways and that the impact of this escalating outbreak at that time, as identified in the strategic response, was put against a backdrop of severely compromised health systems with significant deficits in capacity and rampant fear in communities. One of our close colleagues, Dr. Francis Cate, who's now moved from being on the front line in Liberia of Ebola work to being the chief medical officer in the country, in large part because of his very strong success in, in managing his own district, laid out for us uh, in a conversation we had with him recently a number of elements that if he were able to plan for this moment three years ago, what would he have done? And Francis said, look, I would have built a strong primary care system with infection control and patient safety embedded within the system. I would have established long-term trust in healthcare providers through the community engagement efforts that we had on the ground. I would have ensured that supply chain uh, that laid out essential supplies required for infection prevention and control, including personal protective equipment, but not limited to that, and other patient safety was put in place. I would have begun development of a cadre of IPC and patient safety officers for the future, and I would have focused on strong, safe service delivery as the basis for preparedness. So the message there from Francis, and one that I hope comes across in my talk today, is that the lessons from Ebola point to health system strengthening and the strengthening of the overarching system as the foundation for strong preparedness and a strong response to emergencies. Now, the WHO strategic response plan laid out five areas, uh, stopping the transmission of Ebola virus in the affected countries, preventing new outbreaks of Ebola virus in new areas and countries. That was a big uh, threat. If people remember there was a threat in Nigeria and in other countries. Fast-tracking Ebola research and development, coordinating national and international response, but Right squarely in the middle was the safe reactivation of essential health services and increased resilience. In fact, very early in the discussions, international organizations led by WHO, but including the World Bank, uh, the African Development Bank, and other institutions, and the West African Health Organization, for example, were encouraging partners to be talking with the three countries around the recovery plan for the health sector. The health sector had been decimated in terms of health workers. It had been decimated in terms of uh, the rate at which regular health services were being utilized and it had been decimated in terms of supply chain, so in terms of access to generally to vaccines and, and other information uh, that was needed to run at a district level the health services. The recovery plans put in place in each of these countries was designed to address that, and the work that WHO did with its partners was really to situate this health sector recovery plan within the larger development plan that, that the countries were involved with. And for instance, in Sierra Leone, the health sector recovery plan 
uh, sat within the larger presidentially mandated development plan for the country, laying out uh, a long-term uh, recovery that looked at key expected results of safe and healthy work settings, adequate human resources for health, essential health and sanitation services, uh, trust within communities, effective communication uh, within communities in terms of health alerts, and a health system governance process with standard operating procedures and strengthening of the international health regulations, with which most people in the audience will know is uh, the tool that WHO and its partners use to, to assess and to uh, strengthen country's core capacities for, uh, for preventing and responding to emergencies. So even in Sierra Leone, this particular aspect of work uh, was situated in a larger context of development. And I think that's another lesson from, from the Ebola uh, work and the Ebola response was that without situating the emergencies and the outbreak and the health security strengthening within a larger health system strengthening context, the investments would have been seen to just bubble down into the dirt. In terms of Liberia and its investment plan, the rebuilding of resilient health systems was core to the country's ability to respond to emergencies. So the resilient health system really builds, is built on a whole set of activities and inputs that include medicines capacity and quality services, but also uh, a fit-for-purpose and productive health workforce, et cetera. So these are the elements to epidemic preparedness, not just the investment in labs and immediate uh, access to, to personal protective equipment. All of these leading to goals that were quite broad and cross-cutting, access to and utilization of self and safe and quality health services, emergency risk management, and an appropriate enabling environment. Overall, in all three countries, the lesson that we found was that the countries that are moving towards universal coverage are countries that are moving towards more resilient systems. So if I can just offer seven reflections before perhaps uh, concluding uh, my comments here today, I would say that the issues of first linking the global drive and the local action are key. You have to be able to take the energy and the interest of international donors and base it around countries' needs. Our own director general stood up in front of a meeting of international donors and said, look, there is one country plan. There is not uh, a USAID plan, a UK DFID plan, uh, a NORAD plan. There is one plan that all the development agencies need to be behind in terms of putting forward uh, and advancing these in, on the ground, and that would be the country plan. And, you know, creating that kind of will at the highest level to follow the guidance from the lowest level is important. Secondly, streamlining technical resources. In emergencies, when you get big machines moving, you can be overwhelmed with information, and that, uh, that effort and, and uh, interest and activity needs to be channeled. WHO had 20-plus technical programs or units who were active, and we worked very hard at putting together an integrated libraries of tools and resources in a single source, a recovery toolkit, as it was uh, termed at the time. And it's been used in the Ebola-affected countries through the WHO country office, and now is released uh, for all countries. 
the, the third effort, focus on critical structures for quality, but stay concrete. This is uh, the issues that we have right now in terms of uh, the work in countries and on the ground. It's very difficult to join up the global, as we put it, uh, uh, policy dialogues with things that will make a difference on the ground. One key area for us is the water and sanitation. It's a critical for achieving public health goals. It can reduce infections, uh, increase community trust and services, and save money. And access to water and sanitation in many countries is poor and significantly uh, impacted by the Ebola response. But WHO working with UNICEF and other colleagues uh, and other institutions and other colleagues in countries have been able to improve the national standards and improve training uh, in, in each of these uh, of the Ebola-affected countries and now using those resources moving on to other countries uh, in the region. Point four, driving integration between health security and health systems is something I've tried to make a point of this entire talk was the interrelationship between these questions of health system strengthening and health security. The whole uh, paradigm that health security is built on is around the prevent, detect, and respond uh, dynamic. To work together to prevent the likelihood of outbreaks and other public health hazards and events through, for example, vaccination programs and others to detection. Uh, early detection of public health emergencies will depend on resilient health systems in terms of functioning and trusted health facilities and laboratories and surveillance systems. And then in terms of response, effective response requires activities and infrastructures such as functioning health facilities and public health emergency operations centers, something that WHO has led on and strong case management at the front line to mitigate the impact of the emergency with appropriate infection prevention and control is the key to ensuring health worker safety. Point five, strengthening community engagement for quality in the context of UHC. Very often, and certainly the lesson from Ebola was literally the entire first half, if not two-thirds of the, of the outbreak, was that the community had been ignored. This was a, a disease problem. So the medical, the international medical community helicoptered in to solve it the way it knew how with disease prevention measures, forgetting, of course, that our lessons of centuries of public health dating back to John Snow have taught us that the communities themselves are the strongest and most effective tool to solve these problems. It was the key to the, the quality and resilience question. It's much more than just social mobilization and information dissemination. We began to be, near the end, systematic uh, in the clinical setting and in institutional and policy settings and in community settings around this engagement and had anthropologists, actual teams of anthropologists on motos riding out to all of the sites wherever there were reported cases that were identified. And if you can imagine how much more effective that was at gathering information, at laying the groundwork for, for a disease investigation team to eventually come than riding up in big white land cruisers in these villages that uh, hadn't had a doctor visit uh, since they, for decades meant that the shift of what we felt communities needed to what they actually needed was really made. Point six, catalyzing national quality efforts. This is an important area that needs more exploration in the future as we go forward, as these uh, recovery plans get uh, advanced. But the planning efforts on recovery and resilience 
need to be grounded in policies and strategies. Eventually, that is the mechanism for ensuring that national resources are put behind this. And the lesson WHO has in its work on universal health coverage shows that even now and in very poor countries, much less middle-income countries, up to 70% of health expenditure comes from domestic sources. This is still now even, and not just in the future, but now, these questions of health security and, and health system strengthening are domestic issues. They are primarily going to be driven by domestic resources, not donor resources. This is the whole point of the Sustainable Development Goal Agenda that was agreed and ratified and launched back in January of this year, that the, the ground-up uh, domestic ownership of the development agenda will be where we will go. And I think this is where more effort needs to be done. And, and if I can, as someone who spent years in the quality arena, where the quality, quality improvement, patient safety improvement, infection prevention improvement, all of those communities have, have fallen down slightly. We have missed the, the idea that, that we need to move beyond just our own patients and even our hospital's patients or our network's patients. We need to consider these questions of policies and how they can advance the uh, uh, quality and safety, generally speaking. This is important for po uh, post-shock in terms of reform. Uh, but it's also important in terms of engaging key stakeholders and as well as the frontline perspectives in the policy making. Point seven, emphasizing district management for quality in the context of universal coverage. Uh, the, the agenda for the world in the health arena is around expanding access to quality services, universal coverage. It's vital for improving health outcomes as well as for improving uh, resilient communities. The Ebola response uh, benefited from decentralization efforts that are part of universal coverage. The role of district health management teams is key in this work uh, in terms of identifying and appropriately allocating resources and, and creating uh, the locus for local coordination to improve health status. And if you look at the 2005 uh, international health regulations, the compliance there requires strong integrated health systems in order to be able to prevent, detect, and respond to health threats at the district level. But these DHMTs, as we, call, as we term them, uh, the health management teams, they need to be adequately resourced, planned, and monitored to be effective, and, and a link to be made with the health financing mechanisms. Now, uh, we've done work on this with uh, several uh, resource pieces that are available from WHO, and it's an important area for future work with, with partners in terms of exploring the role of districts and district health management teams, and our regional office is taking a particular lead on this. So the new vision for achieving universal coverage comes back to the points already made very well in the Liberia and Sierra Leone uh, examples that I talked about as they developed and looked to recover from Ebola. The agenda will be health system strengthening in order to achieve universal coverage, but not just for uh, equitable health outcomes and well-being, but also for global public health security and resilient societies. And thirdly, linking back to work that WHO is doing on a major commission for the Secretary General uh, on uh, inclusive economic growth and development within the health sector that's being launched this year at the UN General Assembly, this will also be an agenda for economic growth in terms of investment in the health sector. President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf made some important statements while 
being in charge of the response and, and helping direct the response to Ebola. Her own experience, and as someone that I've met personally, that's um, quite a humble uh, person, is that the, her country had to look at a long-term cure for Ebola. This is a country that is very likely to face future outbreaks very in the very short order, and how would they be able to, quote-unquote, build back better? Her quote read, in Liberia, a country that never before had an incidence of Ebola, we were utterly ill-equipped and unprepared. What is so tragic is that until this outbreak, Liberia had made significant progress in building up its public health systems. Countries like Liberia need long-term investment to build up our health systems to prevent outbreaks of this scale from ever happening again. We owe it to the thousands of citizens and health workers who have so far lost their lives to be prepared. So I'll end with, the, with that great quote and offer to you just uh, the last thoughts where you can learn a bit more uh, about this at the WHO uh, website, uh, service delivery and safety in the areas that we've covered here today. And I would encourage you to look at the wider context of sepsis within these questions of universal coverage and then within the issues of patient safety and ensuring access to quality services. The discussions you'll have at the conference will help shape the future directions on this important issue, one that's cross-cutting and touches on so many different patient populations and healthcare settings. And it's certainly one that's very prominent on the World Health Organization's agenda, partially because of the points I just made earlier, but also partially because it touches on a broad set of policy, clinical issues, and country strengthening that WHO feels need to be at the center of the debate as we move forward with the Sustainable Development Goal agenda. Thank you so much for the time today, and we'll look forward to being in touch. Um, this is um, Chair uh, Nikki Shindo. Um, fortunately, uh, Ed is not on this call um, as a person. Um, so I will ask the Secretariat to forward questions and comments uh, directly to um, Dr. Ed Kelly. Uh, with that, I would like to move to the next speaker, Dr. Tancred Sturbe, uh from uh, MSF Germany. Um, he's um, director of MSF Germany, and he's uh, worked in an um, extremely challenging uh, environment and conditions, including his recent mission to uh, Somalia, Iraq, South Sudan, and Sierra Leone. With that, I would like to um, invite Dr. Tancred to uh, to take the floor. Please. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for your warm uh, welcome and introduction. Um, yeah, this uh, sort of we just heard a very interesting um, sort of uh, considerations from WHO, and um, now we take a view sort of from a from a uh, yeah private and um, NGO point of view. Um, and um, just maybe to start with, um, Ebola did not only change um, the three countries in West Africa, it also had uh, one of the most significant um, impacts on uh, yeah, the, the, the organization of uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, MSF, Doctors Without Borders. Uh, we all um, had, uh, yeah, we're, were deeply uh, impressed, but also shocked by what we had to learn during this Ebola outbreak. Um, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very keen to uh, share with you what, uh, what, from our point of view, um, happened uh, over this epidemic. Um, and uh, surely um, uh, we, we have been heavily involved, but um, uh, allow me that, uh, of course, our view is also um, a bit, um, um, yeah, sort of um, in, in, in respect to how we, we saw what happened in um, West Africa. Yeah, what, what have we learned? This is, of course, the big question we're looking forward. Interestingly, maybe to start with, um, this Ebola outbreak, even though it was the biggest and most deadly one, it was by far not the first one. Um, looking back at previous Ebola outbreaks, um, we know then since the 1970s there have been several outbreaks, but um, all of them have been around um, uh, Central and, and East Africa. And um, all of them were uh, regional and, and had not a big impact in terms of uh, impact um, impacting health and infection. So we had uh, usually seen up to three, four hundred people being infected, um, up to um, 220 um, dying from this. But uh, all of those outbreaks uh, since the 1970s could have been contained within that region and never spilled over um, to another country or let alone another continent. Um, having said that, um, MSF, we had about 40 people, experts in the organization who knew about um, Ebola and um, this was uh, yeah, when um, we learned about in March 2014 um, that this is a new Ebola outbreak in West Africa this time, an area which never before was affected by this disease. Um, a few figures um, uh, about, um, uh, yeah, just sort of to, to update everyone, uh, the outbreak lasted two and a half years, the longest ever um, Looking back, we know that the first patient probably um, was infected in 2013, um, a small boy, um, and it lasted actually until June this year. Um, uh, more than 28,000 people got infected, more than uh, 11,000 confirmed died, uh, mainly in the, the two years, 2014 and 15. Um, and um, uh, in all previous uh, Ebola outbreaks uh, since the 1970s, um, 2,427 people got infected and 1,597 died, so a very small proportion compared to the uh, recent outbreak. Very um, worrying was also the um, finding that um, more than 800 health care workers in the three countries were infected, more than 500 of them died, so um, a very fragile health system um, definitely got uh, further weakened by this. Um, we saw that a failure not only of the national but also the international actors respond early enough so that it, it, it did get out of control. Um, we also saw that uh, the, the meaningful support was far too late. Um, it began to arrive only in September 2014. Um, another dilemma we witnessed was that it was um, yeah, mentioned or, or declared as a health crisis, but not a humanitarian crisis. Um, but a humanitarian crisis, of course, would have um, preventing a wider, uh, preventing a sort of a neglect of other um, things like schools, universities, uh, uh, humanitarian crisis usually, of course, affect all areas of life. Um, looking at the three countries, um, Guinea is the biggest one, and that's where it started. Uh, it started in sort of the um, in, a, in, a, in a small um, forested area, um, and then quickly spread over to Liberia and then Sierra Leone um, in. Uh, where, where it started um, it, 
for a long time, for many months, it, it was it remained undetected. But of course, then reaching Liberia and the capital of Monrovia was devastating. Um, but all three capitals of the three countries were affected, and that, of course, um, was so um, worrisome. Um, yeah, if we look at the numbers very briefly only, is um, it's, it's interesting, even in Guinea, where it started and lasted the longest, um, the confirmed cases and the death cases were the lowest in all three countries, while in Liberia, um, the death toll was 4,809 patients um, were the highest, and Sierra Leone had the highest number of infected infected people with, with 14,000, um, more than 14,000. Currently, in West Africa, we see that, that the healthcare system in all the three countries is severely damaged, if not uh, collapsed. Um, we see that the trust in the government and in the hospital is um, very much sort of down. Uh, people uh, still don't try or don't sort of don't don't dare to go to hospitals because of all the bad experiences they have. Um, we know that um, uh, even so, Sierra Leone is, is Ebola-free since March um, uh, this year. Um, Liberia and, and Guinea are only Ebola-free since June, so it's it's just really over now. Um, we um, we know that sort of. Yeah, the, the main years, as I said earlier, were 2014 and 15, but relapses, individual relapses occurred um, repeatedly in, in the last two years in all the three countries. And of course, each relapse can cause a new infection that can spread as um, a as new um, outbreak. Um, today, we um, see in our survivor clinics, uh, people present with uh, depression, with other mental health disorders, with eye complaints and other diseases. So very important to look at, the, to follow up on those people who have suffered um, from Ebola. Yeah, uh, a brief uh, look also what um, for for MSF what was what were the main challenges we had uh, in in this Ebola response. Um, first, uh, we we uh, admitted uh, more than ten thousand patients to our um, Ebola treatment centers, and more than five thousand could be confirmed with Ebola. Out of them, three thousand died. The highest number of um, deaths um, we can ever imagine in a in a given outbreak where we were involved. Uh, of course, that was extremely traumatizing for doctors and nurses just working day and night, but still um, half of our patients died. Um, but the good news was that uh, in more than 2,400 did survive, um, and of course each of them was, was, a, was a beautiful um, moment, was a moment to celebrate uh, life and, and survival. Um, we were confronted in 2014 with many different humanitarian crises. Um, we had to um, serve, um, uh, just uh, to mention, South Sudan and, and Syria. Uh, so we could, of course, not um, pull all our stuff into one region alone. Um, so this was stretching our capacity. Um, in the beginning, we felt very much sort of alone with, with the national and local health stuff um, until uh, September in 2014. Um, Almost 90% of all patients, Ebola patients, were treated with by by MSF and um, the uh, three countries involved. Um, yeah, and and as said, losing half or more than half of the patients is extremely frustrating. Um, also, from our staff, um, we had um, uh, 28 um, our of our staff being infected with Ebola, and there again, half of them, 14, died. Each of these cases was a sec severe security incident. We had to um, follow up. And, and, and look how that could happen. Uh, we realized that most of them were not infected in the clinic. Well, almost all of them were infected at home, helping staff, um, helping.
having family members or um, neighbors. We realized that our own mobilization of um, our stuff um, should have been faster. Um, only by the end of 2014, we were able to have the maximum uh, number of stuff of, of about 4,500 people in the three countries available. Um, we had a high turnover of stuff. Um, of course, as I said, um, we needed experienced um, people and and. Like never before, we had a huge um, knowledge transfer. More than a thousand healthcare workers uh, were trained by MSF. Not only MSF people, um, other NGOs, uh, state workers, even army people. We trained. Um, the six pillars, and I look at that in a little while with you, um, were not wide enough and, and fast enough implemented. Um, and we saw adjusting strategies. We, we we had to adjust our strategies almost on a weekly basis. Um, yeah, and there was always this dilemma, this tension between individual patient care versus public health care. And and of course, this tension was was getting getting fiercer every every month. Yeah, myself, um, uh, as I said in the introduction, I, I was able to work uh, in Sierra Leone, and uh, we had a, a treatment center there um, in Freetown, which um, which was set up uh, within 12 days. Uh, we had a capacity for about 100 patients. Um, this was um, when I was there in, in January 2015. Uh, we had um, an, an observation area where we checked the patients, uh, diagnosed them, and only the um, positive Ebola patients were admitted, um, and then we had an intensive care uh, tent and a sort of more for stable patient uh, care tent and uh, that allowed us to um, yeah to um, differentiate and and but of course in the intensive care um, tent most most of the severe sick um, we we could not save um, yeah, looking at the six pillars uh, to control Ebola, um, they were set up uh, before but we, we, we changed a little bit um, the um, uh, the, the order of it, order of it. Of course, number one is, and, and that's clear for every health worker involved, the isolation and the care of the individual patient. Um, the second one we realize now in this context is safe burials, uh, because we knew from um, washing the dead body, the, the virus easily spreads to 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 relatives and those who are involved. Um, the third thing is awareness rising. We had to inform or we had to help um, um, spreading the news in all the three countries. There was a huge lack of um, knowledge about the, the, the disease. Um, then we had to do a disease surveillance. We needed um, to, um, to collect data to uh, see where, um, how, how, the, how the disease, how the Ebola outbreak developed. We had um, to look at contract tracing, meaning that everyone who got infected had had usually multiple relatives, friends who uh, had a close contact and they all needed to be informed and asked uh, to immediately show up in case they develop symptoms. And then of course um, all the other issues uh, regarding um, healthcare in the three countries which were not related to Ebola were extremely sort of um, difficult. Uh, people died from normal diseases because there was simply no one to look after that. We move on. Um, what are the challenges uh, we see now today? Um, yeah, um, it, it has been extremely long and devastating for uh, two and a half years. This outbreak, um, 
flexible mobile rapid response teams are still needed in case um, another relapse happened. Um, awareness raising about Ebola um, surveillance system still needs to be in place because the, the alertness has to keep on um, and um, yeah, uh, sort of looking after the survivors in specific um, survivor clinic um, uh, has to carry um, through um, but also, and that, of course, is a huge goal, the rehabilitation of the healthcare system in the three affected countries. Uh, that will take years to come. Research and development for Ebola drugs and vaccine has to continue. We now have a vaccine, but we don't have Ebola drugs. Um, and, of course, we need a critical review, and that's why I'm happy that um, Mr. Kelly and, and me and others today with you can discuss the issue. This has to um, improve because next time the preparation needs to be better. We cannot afford that, that an outbreak like this happens um, again. Um, looking at the, at the medical lessons learned from Ebola, and of course um, uh, we looked at what is the cause, what, 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 why do people die, and is there anything we can predict it? And you know, actually only two things we realize, it's the viral load, at, at initial stage um, and um, the age, so young people and old people die um, faster, but all the other reasons we looked at did not prove um, to be significant. Um, interesting also, while in previous outbreaks, usually 90% um, of the Ebola patients died, and this uh, only 60% compared, 60% uh, is huge, but um, compared to the 90%, this is um, something we um, can only observe. There is no clear explanation. Um, and talking about sepsis, um, all the patients I saw, in at least in the final stage, were in a, in a septic shock condition, and they all had multi-organ failure. So, uh, um, yeah, uh, in, in, in the advanced stage of Ebola, we see a septic condition, and um, that's why fluid management was a, was a very important thing for us. Um, we know that uh, body fluids uh, of survivors may transmit Ebola, um, and we need to look in the future also sort of that the, the designs of the Ebola treatment center have to be more flexible to scale up and down in size and in bed capacity. This um, needs to get, get better in future. Um, we also feel that the alignment of training um, for national and international staff um, uh, needs to happen. Um, and and uh, sort of um, the, the research, the clinical research um, and operational research regarding Ebola has to be starting much, much earlier, we realized it was uh, too long. Um, yeah, um, ethical dilemmas, and then, um, of course, the, the um, Ebola guidelines have to be updated. Take-home messages, um, um, yeah, we um, have to speed up the response next time, having more flexible solutions. Um, it was clearly a political failure, um, uh, and sorry to the WHO, I think um, we clearly need the WHO next time to be in a, in a better leading role here, um, and research and development for neglected diseases like Ebola, but others as well, um, has to be um, increased, so for, for drugs and vaccines um, and tests as well to have it easier and better. Yeah, that brings me almost to, to the end. Um, I thank you very much. Here you see um, our last uh, or the last Ebola survivor, a small girl, Mariatu, um, which was admitted at the time when I got there, and she finally survived, which was a beautiful happiness, uh, happy ending. Thank you very much, and if you have any questions, please um, bring them up. Thank you, Dr. Shrube. Um It was a great talk with uh, the very nice pictures and uh, really um, 
summarize the key points from from the experience um, we went through um, Ebola. Uh, in order to make sure, um, right now we haven't received any questions um, from the audience, so I'd like to um, benefit from uh, um, this and um, uh, Excuse me, um, there's a message from Secretariat. So, um, so yes, I've been, I would like to add some points. So, um, uh, these great lessons learned um, have been extensively, I guess, discussed um, throughout the um, the um, MSF and, and other NGOs. So, um, do you think there are um, enough interest from? Um, donor side or the contributor side in terms of resources um, to make sure that um, next time it's ready, particularly in these uh, three West African countries um, where healthcare workers were severely affected um, in order to um, grow the next generation of the healthcare workers, uh, it will take decades. So uh, what's your plan as MSF to help the situation? Over to you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Very good question indeed. And um, I mean, I'm, I, personally, I, I see a lot of initiatives, a lot of um, critical interviews and critical debates, meetings, conferences, actually even including this one here, where people are concerned um, that we cannot let go on, on that experience, but we need to learn lessons. So um, on the one hand, I see a lot of critical debate reflection going on. And um, so there is, uh, you would guess, a good chance that that next time things will move quicker and better and more efficient. On the other hand, of course, we, we, we can be very sure that uh, another Ebola outbreak will happen again, probably in a resource poor country or setting. And um, the, the big question is that uh, very, very quickly, the regional or national health system may be overburdened. So the question will be, how will the international community respond? And um, there, I think there are quite some big question marks whether that's going to be better next time. Um, I really hope, yes, sure, but um, I, I think reality needs to prove this, and um, we have heard many, many um, yeah, promises by different stakeholders, um, but we have heard them before, so um, I remain skeptical, to be honest, uh, on this, um, uh, specifically since, yes, a vaccine now is available, but no drugs, yeah? so if an Ebola outbreak happens again, um, people will be again um, uh, die from this um, uh, if, if help is not coming sooner, yeah? so um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a bit skeptical, um, but of course, um, I hope it will it will be at least the, the international response will um, arrive um, faster. Thank you very much. A very nice um, comment. Thank you. So we we should go to the, uh, Professor John Marshall uh, from Canada. So. Um, I don't know how to introduce John. John has been uh, acting act so many roles and um, key roles in the international um, clinical uh, scene. And so he's professor of surgery at the University of Toronto, also trauma surgery and intensive um, specialist at St. Michael's um, Hospital. And he's the founder and the chair of international um, uh, forum of acute care trialists, and in, sh in short, in fact, and besides various other 
uh, leadership roles. Um, he um, also runs. Um, uh, um, uh, he he also um, acts his role as the um, the chairing chairing the, of the um, World Federation, um, and um, he was the previous chair of Inter International Sepsis Forum. Uh, actually, this forum. So, um, John, can, can I invite you? I'm sorry for the, the change of the order, but I uh, hope that all, you're ready for the Great. Thank you. Yeah, not at all, Nikki, and thanks so much for the very kind introduction. Uh, thanks so much to the organizers of this. I've been following it uh, this afternoon. It's a wonderful uh, opportunity, wonderful new opportunity for people from around the world to uh, share ideas and insights, and I've really enjoyed the uh, session uh, as it's uh, taken shape so far. A lot of what I'm going to say has been said by others, and so we may be able to make up a little bit of time uh, as we go forward here. Um, so the main point I wanted to make, though, really just to launch this, was that uh, when we look at pandemics and when pandemics strike us, we tend to think of this as being uh, something catastrophic and extraordinary. But the truth is that our entire evolution as a species has been shaped by the fact that we are hit on a recurrent basis uh, by pandemics. They have devastating effects on, con on populations of patients. Uh, the Black Plague in uh, uh, back in the Middle Ages uh, killed perhaps about a third to uh, a half of the uh, population of England. And uh, more recently, in 1918-1919, as we've heard, uh, somewhere between 50 and 100 million people died uh, from H1N1 uh, influenza. This is critically important, not only from the perspective of pandemics and the toll that they take, but also from understanding the pathogenesis of sepsis and why this is such a complex and changing uh, and fundamental process for human disease. So if we think about sepsis as we currently do as being the disorder that results from a dysregulated response to uh, infection, uh, we can see that infection has really shaped the human genome uh, over uh, millennia. This map shows the uh, distribution of polymorphisms in the hemoglobin gene, and you'll see it maps absolutely to those areas of the world where malaria is prevalent. And as a consequence uh, of that, uh, these polymorphisms in the hemoglobin gene uh, rendered patients uh, more resistant to the effects of malaria. Uh, similarly, uh, some really neat work done by a group in Scandinavia has shown the extraordinarily strong uh, genetic uh, impact on uh, infection, not on susceptibility to infection, as this paper uh, from Sorensen shows, uh, but on the risk of adverse outcome if you become infected. So by doing an adoptee study, what these authors showed was that uh, there's no increased risk of acquiring infection based on your genetics, but a very, very big uh, increase in the risk of dying from that infection if you had uh, blood relatives who had also died of an infectious disease. So it underlines the importance of the host response and it also underlines the importance of this uh, continuing uh, presence in our existence, that of uh, pandemics. Now, 
Recently, we've added another element, which has really modified uh, the uh, outcome of pandemics. We spoke briefly about genetics, but the intensive care unit, in a sense, has also had a potent impact on the course for uh, pandemics. As you heard in the first talk, uh, patients during the influenza pandemic of 1918-1919 uh, died of multiple organ failure, of respiratory failure, renal failure, uh, concomitant bacterial infections. You can see the impact of the, that one uh, infectious event on mortality from infectious diseases in the United States. But importantly, and I, Rob Fowler emphasized this as well, in the current uh, setting, most of those patients could be kept alive and ultimately uh, recover from their illness if they had access to an intensive care unit. And this was something that became uh, very apparent during the SARS and uh, H1N1 pandemics uh, of uh, earlier this uh, particular century. It's another very important consequence of this, and I uh, have to applaud Nikki Shindo for her sense of vision in recognizing this, and that is that the ICU not only is the venue where people who are very sick can be supported uh, so they can ultimately survive their illness, it is also the first place the people who are the sickest go, and therefore the ICU has assumed a very important role in uh, public health and uh, in uh, understanding how a pandemic is emerging, what that pandemic looks like in its sickest patients, and importantly, in leading uh, research efforts to uh, respond appropriately. Uh, during the H1N1 pandemic, uh, very quickly, ICU research groups in Canada and Australia, Canada led by Rob Fowler, uh, Australia by Steve Webb and other people, uh, undertook large uh, epidemiologic studies to characterize H1N1 influenza in its uh, most seriously ill victims, who were those patients who were admitted to intensive care units, and provided within a matter of months a very uh, granular picture of what that uh, disease looked like, who was at risk, uh, what their mortality risk was. And although at the time things were not particularly well coordinated to communicate that information to decision makers, that situation uh, is changing. Indeed, the ICU community uh, has a very uh, strong uh, tradition of uh, clinical research, and uh, ICU research groups from many continents got together uh, very shortly after the onset of the H1N1 pandemic to try to organize a global response uh, to that pandemic, a global research response, which would include not only cohort studies to understand the nature of the emerging uh, infection, but also randomized clinical trials to test uh, interventions that might uh, alter uh, clinical outcomes. It was a very, very modest success. We launched uh, three clinical trials, but uh, learned an enormous amount about what needs to be done to respond uh, to pandemics. And around the same time, investigators in infectious diseases and uh, tropical health uh, at the behest of the uh, uh, Wellcome Trust came together to form the, acute, the International Severe Acute Respiratory and Emerging Infections Consortium, uh, or ISERIC. This is a body that uh, is based in Oxford in the United Kingdom uh, that includes uh, not only infectious disease uh, specialists, but also 
uh, intensivists uh, and critical care specialists, has very strong uh, ties to groups like the WHO and to funders, and has assumed a very active role in specific uh, research into the recent outbreaks of MERS coronavirus, H7 and 9, uh, Zika, uh, etc. And what these initiatives have done is they've begun to shed light on the enormous challenges, but also the specific te- steps that have to be taken to be able to be uh, to launch uh, research uh, in a timely fashion during the pandemic. Perhaps the most important lesson learned is that you can't do it on the fly. We have to be prepared in the interpandemic period uh, by building capacity. And I'm going to go into a couple of the initiatives that are currently uh, taking place to try to build some of that uh, capacity. So one of the things that would be invaluable is to know where the sickest patients around the world are being cared for, what uh, uh, capacity they have to provide care, and who is actually uh, being cared in those areas. In a sense, to have the early warning uh, signs for an emerging pandemic and an understanding of what was going to be needed to care for its victims. And so David Wallace, who's an intensivist at the University of Pittsburgh, has launched a project called Access Maps, which seeks to electronically map every acute care setting uh, on the planet, uh, has got uh, buy-in from uh, IBM and a number of other groups to set up a electronic network that can link intensive care units uh, together and so provide a kind of uh, early warning um, capacity for pandemics, similar to uh, what exists for uh, tsunamis. Through INFACT, the International Forum for Acute Care Trialists, the model of uh, investigator-led clinical trials groups has really expanded around the world. It, in fact, is very actively involved in supporting the emergence of groups in Latin America, uh, Brazil, uh, in China, the Chinese critical care trials groups. There's a group in Asia. There's a group in five countries in Southeast Asia and two groups in Africa, one in North Africa uh, and one in Sub-Saharan Africa called ACART. And so there is capacity that is being built to undertake uh, initially cohort studies, but uh, in the not-too-distant future, randomized clinical trials, uh, and uh, the critical care community is contributing to the process of uh, mentoring and educating these emerging groups. So uh, Charles Gomersall in Hong Kong and Shea McGinnis have developed a basic research course that is available to be given to emerging clinical research groups. Uh, uses a train-the-trainer model, and the first of these uh, courses is going to be given uh, in the next couple of months in Karachi, Pakistan, with the hope that it, uh, as a result of rolling this out uh, in many, many jurisdictions around the world, will be able to build indigenous capacity uh, to respond uh, to future pandemics. Uh, Sprint Sari is an initiative of ASARC, uh, INFACT, and uh, PREPARE, uh, being led by Stephen Webb from Australia. And the goal here is by undertaking a recurring uh, short-period incident study of community-acquired pneumonia to have the infrastructure in place to do very rapid uh, characterizations of emerging uh, pandemics. And data collection has begun on this particular uh, study in uh, dozens of different networks around the world. 
there's uh, funding becoming available for integrated large-scale collaborations on uh, pandemic responsiveness. Uh, the first of these was the PREPARE program in uh, the EU. And one of the very exciting ideas coming out of this is the notion that in addition to conducting cohort studies, we could also conduct uh, clinical trials using what's called a platform trial, where one sets up a trial using adaptive uh, statistical designs and can uh, progressively evaluate multiple different interventions, changing those interventions as the trial learns what works and what doesn't work, but equally changing the interventions in response to the acute needs of something like an emerging uh, pandemic. And so this is now funded in the EU. It's funded as well in Australia. We are applying for funding in Canada, and there's another application going in in Africa. So over the next couple of years, uh, this uh, design will have the opportunity to experiment with how it uh, might work. Finally, I just want to make the point uh, that I think others have made during this that really an effective uh, research and clinical response to problems like H1N1 uh, or Ebola is not contingent on coming up with uh, fancy new diagnostics or uh, therapeutics, but rather understanding how we can uh, use the tools that we have currently, but use them better, how we can use the mechanical ventilator, how we can give fluids, how we can give antibiotics, and how we can disseminate uh, the uh, knowledge about using basic supportive care uh, so that it is more widely and equitably uh, available around the world. I think one of the lessons I take from the Ebola uh, epidemic is that understanding how to start an intravenous and give intravenous fluids is extraordinarily important and probably much, much more important uh, than testing a new uh, siRNA against the uh, Ebola virus. So just to conclude, I think pandemics are a recurring uh, part of our existence. They've shaped our genome. They've really created, in many ways, the complexity of the uh, uh, syndrome of sepsis. But they've really also challenged us as researchers to think in a visionary fashion about new models of collaboration, new models of funding, uh, and new models of uh, coordination of uh, uh, activities. And so it's... Um, a challenge, but but uh, also a very exciting opportunity, I think, for uh, uh, sepsis and sepsis researchers around the world. Thanks very much. Thanks, John, uh, for a wonderful presentation, as, as always. And, um, yes, yeah, so um, some of the um, studies are already launching, and then... Uh, because it's really important to start um, uh, these preparations during a pandemic period. So um, with, with these um, um, studies that you are involved, um, so which ones are already running? Uh, so Sprint Sorry is running. Uh, data collection uh, began uh, this past winter and continuing uh, in the Southern Hemisphere um, uh, very shortly. Um, the uh, EU Prepare Program is funded. Uh, uh, interventions have been selected. I'm not sure if any patients have actually been recruited to it yet. Uh, the Australian uh, um, program has just been funded in the last couple of months, and they're finalizing decisions about the interventions that they're going to uh, use there. They're a, a very, very experienced and uh, dynamic group, and once they get going, uh, I think we'll see an awful lot come out of that particular uh, initiative. Thank you very much, John. Um, then I would like to introduce our last speaker, 
Dr. Norman Lufesi uh, from uh, Malawi. Um, he's a program manager of acute respiratory infection control in Malawi and uh, responsible for the control of ARIs, particularly pneumonia in children. And he's in charge and a leading um, adaptive WHO pocket book for hospital um, uh, for children and also uh, emergency triage and treatment program, which is a short ETAT program in the country. Um, so welcome, Norman. The uh, floor is yours. Uh, thank you very much um, for the introduction. Uh, I'm Norman from Malawi, and uh, I'll be presenting on barriers to clinical and epidemiological research in Africa. Basically, research is the most important thing for Africans and uh, globally, and uh, if we have to tackle the disease successfully, we need uh, good research to be done. In this uh, presentation, I'll be looking at how best can we do, deal with research in Africa and uh, looking at how Africans can come and do research on their own and can attain independent uh, research in independent, independent research. Uh, the major barriers to research in Africa, most of them have categorized the barriers into two, the barriers on the production side and the barriers on the uh, consumption side. On the uh, barriers on the production side, there's lack of research funding. Basically, always we blame governments that they put little budgets for research and inadequate skills for writing research grants. Basically, I think in Africa, we have most people who are trained as researchers outside. And when they come back, they, take, they tend to take big work, and most are not research-related. And at the end of the day, we find that even the government money which has been allocated for research has not been used properly. There's lack of capacity to conduct research, and the lack of capacity in research design and implementation. And these are the major factors which cause lack, lack of capacity in research grant application, inadequate experience researchers to mentor the, the upcoming researchers, and few researchers end up into managerial positions. Most research is brought and read by Made by foreigners, uh, mostly from the people from different countries, like uh, people from Europe, people from America, people from different countries. The major problem is that when they come to Africa, mostly they, they, most researchers bring an already finished product, which gives no no room for Africans to learn from them. When research is finished, uh, that the data the data has been collected. Most of the times, the research is, data collection is done in, in, in countries where the research has been originated. And manuscripts are written there, and most of the times, African researchers are converted to come and become co-authors, but they have not contributed much in that process. Most research projects ends without building capacity. And inadequate in, in Africa, like in Malawi, we have very inadequate research infrastructure and a favorable environment for the research to thrive. For example, in Malawi, we have we have many people who have been trained as researchers from different universities across the globe, 
But for them to come together and do good research and continue doing the research is another problem which we are having. Uh, most African researchers lack the skills to publish in international journals. Most of we, the Africans conduct research. Most of the times they end up having the research in just in most of in offices and they collect a lot of a lot of data is collected in in the fields uh, but they, it's not published. I'll give you an example of the office which uh, I work. I've seen a lot of work being happening, a lot of work being done, but mostly the work remains unpublished because I think we don't we lack critical skills which we can use to conduct research. We have worked with a many, many researchers across the globe, but what happens is that when the process has gone, they get gone through, the data collection is not done, the data entry, data collection, and data analysis is not done at the, in Africa most of the times, and if it is done in Africa, it's done in a small scale, and what happens is at the end of the day, we have inadequate skills for researchers to do research in Africa. Uh, barriers on the consumer side, when we look at the consumer side, we look at mechanisms to access research. Thanks to the open access to different journals and different organizations giving open access to Africans to access medical journals and other journals, whereby I think if we have to deal with this, we need to have good consumers who can be able to do this research. And the most important problems which we have are there's no repository for research in most of the institutions, and most institutions, they don't have time to do their research. Uh, no subscription to journals and the poor dissemination and targeting of research findings. Inadequate skills among policymakers to analyze routine data. And most of the time, not just to analyze routine data, there's also another problem which I think researchers do. We speak in research language, while the policymakers in Africa, most of them, they, they do not really speak in research language. For example, when we talk about the confidence interval, we talk about the confidence interval, but most of the time, policymakers do not understand what a confidence interval is. So we need to report, to package the data properly so that the data can be used and well interpreted. And most of the policymakers lack access to research and they lack skills to appraise research. And do the next slide is to interpret and synthesize research. So there are the way uh, to way forward. I think the, the best way forward for us to do will be for government to increase the allocation of research. Despite that some funding is not used uh, when it is allocated for research, I think it is important for Af uh, African people, African researchers, to start spending and try to convince governments that they will use their money so that the government can increase the number of research. Um, there's need for scientific, scientific scientists should lead better design programs that promote training of the new generation of researchers in Africa in the whole cycle, not only in the data collection, but they should be able to start in the design of research, 
design of grant uh, grant proposals, managing the grant proposals, implementing the research, and presenting and writing research research so that we'll be able to publish in this one. An example which has been a, a successful program which has happened is the, the one which has been done by the American Thoracic Society. In this, the American Thoracic Society, they, they, are, uh, they are teaching Africans to come and learn the whole cycle of research. They're designing, the program is called the Path Makeup, an African Thoracic Society method in epidemiological and clinical research and clinical and operational research. This is a very important tool whereby they are mentoring young African researchers to design, plan, implement, present research and also to write research grants and write manuscripts. I think programs like this are very important and many researchers, I will urge many researchers from different countries to make sure that they deliberately design their projects like those. And another way forward is for the government and research institution to ensure that a bit of research infrastructure is available. Mostly in Africa, we, we lack research infrastructure. If you want to do research, you have to struggle, you have to move around, you have to do different things. But I think if the country, uh, the, the government can deliberately in make institutions which conduct research, good research, will be very important. African institutions should embrace the catch of research, and new research institutions need to be generated so that they can advance the, uh, the, independent, uh, the independence in research. Advanced research centers should develop long-term collaborations uh, with African institutions. In this one, I think if, if countries which have advanced research centers can collaborate with African, uh, African research centers, institutions, try to mentor them, try to coach how to run an institution, how to conduct research, and how to manage grant money, that would be very, very important. And lastly, I think if the government can do deliberate move to provide small grants to young African scientists, which will be able to give them the, the mandate, will be able to give them the young Africans the courage to say, let me go and do research. I'm able to do this research. I'm able to get a small grant. I'll be able to get a bigger grant. That will be another important thing if we have to promote research in each and every uh, clinical research. And lastly, we see that Clinical research and epidemiological research is critical in African health systems, but there's a critical gap that there's lack of clinical research. And not, I would propose that North to South partnerships, which have been, already have been starting happening, we need to strengthen them so that they can move and try to help Africans become independent in their states. Thank you very much. Thank you, Norma. It's a wonderful talk. And then I agree with all the points. And I think this, particularly this community, uh, has, have to, um, work with you to, to make sure these points are happen. Okay. Um, thank you very much. And, um, so, um,
This is a message from the organizers. Um, let's, um, I would like um, all the uh, participants to encourage to, to become a supporter and uh, sign in the word sepsis declaration, please. And also um, check in our Facebook and uh, um, Twitter for the um, uh, uh, word sepsis uh, declaration and, and stops us um, the um, the sepsis uh, campaign. And uh, lastly, I would like to thank our sponsors for making the first uh, World Sepsis Congress, uh, Congress possible. Uh, with this, I would like to conclude uh, this uh, session. Thank you very much for, for the speakers and also the, um, the listeners. Um, goodbye. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who made this possible, especially our sponsors, which you can find on the Congress website. We will continue with Patient Safety and Quality Improvement Part 2 on February the 17th. I hope you will join again. Fail, fail, fail.